0: Hey, this is the Covenant Courses Podcast, and my name is Weston Brown. This is episode seven in our 12 week Foundations of Effective Bible Study course. And this week is the first in a few episodes on the process of biblical interpretation. And today we're going to consider what is called the meta narrative of Scripture or the overarching storyline of the Bible. And it's critical that we have an understanding of this if we're going to interpret the Bible well. So join us as we jump into this week's conversation. So in our last episode, we introduced what's called the Inductive Bible Study Method, and just to just to quickly walk through that again, it's it's just three steps. It's easy to remember. It's observe, interpret, and apply. And so we spent most of our time in the last episode talking about that observation piece, like really close reading uh, the text of Scripture when you're studying the Bible, and taking time to um, to really kind of drink in what's on the page to. Um, either journal or mark up your Bible or uh, read it multiple times. Whatever you need to do to adequately inter- or adequately ob- observe what's on the page um, is then going to help you accurately interpret what the meaning of the text is, which will then help you apply that to your life. And you know, Taylor, as we said, like you can't you can't really skip any of those steps, even though we're inclined to. Like if we're going to um, if we're going to engage with the Word of God uh, correctly and sort of handle it rightly, um, we have to we have to do this work. It, mm-hmm. It's um, you know it's not something that we can just kind of casually do, um, because our tendency is to want to just read it and then apply it to our lives, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. I, I think the the most important here the most important thing here is maybe slowing down. Yeah, because yeah. that's what you mentioned. We we really want to get that quick fix, and that's what. You can have a lot of Bible studies and a lot of resources that are kind of geared toward that. But what we're saying is to kind of take a different approach, slow down. And last week we spent you know, the full hour just talking about observation and really didn't cover everything there is in observation. True. But yeah. that just goes to show that these steps take time. And it, it is doing the work, <laughs> yeah. but it's for what we believe is a better payoff.
0: Yeah, and, and I like that. I like that idea of, of engaging slowly. With, with the Scripture. Um, uh, and maybe another way you could think about that is, is is engaging in a proactive way with the Bible rather than in like a reactive way with the Bible. Yeah. Um, I think in episode two, we talked about the fact that the Bible was not uh, like an answer book. Um, and so if we are, if we're only studying the Bible when we have a specific problem or question that we're trying to fix or answer, um, then, then we're coming into it, coming to it in sort of a reactive way. I'm like, I'm trying to discover something or get something to address a particular need. That's not wrong or bad per se, but but I think what we're talking about is a more proactive thing where we're going, hey, well, I'm I'm just going to study this passage of scripture and I'm going to see what the Lord shows me as I do this, um, and and then I'm going to figure out how that thing applies to my life or if it applies to my life right now yeah um so what we want to do today and over the next two episodes as well is we want to begin this process of interpreting the Bible, which I think for most people is a scary thing. Um, it feels like something that I, I need a lot of knowledge in order to be able to do correctly. Um, or maybe this is something only for trained theologians to engage in. and um, and, and just so we're clear, when, when we talk about interpreting the Bible, um, that's different from translating the Bible. I think sometimes people, you know, mix those words up or use those words simultaneously. Translating the Bible would mean that we're we're literally like taking the original languages and 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 translating it into English. Yeah. That's that's not what we're talking about. Um, we're talking about taking the text that we have in English and uh, discerning the meaning of the text. Um, and as we said in the past, there is there's really only one meaning for any passage of Scripture that you're looking at. There there is what God intends, what the human author intends um, in the passage. But but then there may be multiple applications for a particular passage of Scripture, ways that it can be applied to everyday life. And to get us started uh, on that track today, we're going to talk about what's called the meta narrative of Scripture. Um, Hopefully, uh, we've drilled into your head that context is key Uh, when we're studying the Bible. If we cannot uh, establish uh, accurate context, then we're more than likely just going to be off base. And um, last time, we spent a a good portion of the episode talking about how to go about establishing context. Um, But one of the key things, I think, for us to know is that um, the Bible tells a cohesive story, and I, I I don't know that that's something that everybody knows. I think maybe
1: people think it tells a variety of stories mm-hmm. um, or at least two. yeah, you've got the you know you've got the common Old Testament and New Testament division, kind of yeah. a, a divide that really we've created in essence and and we separate we separate the Bible into these categories and and I think unfairly, we can also mentally separate our picture of God in these ways. Mm, yeah. we, so And so you can really start to bisect uh, not only the narrative of Scripture, but our faith in certain areas. Yeah, yeah.
0: I think it could be helpful, too, to just refer back to our, our basic definition of what the Bible is as we start down this road today, which is that the Bible is the story of God and His revelation of Himself to humanity, and His grand plan of restoration through Christ. Um, and, and when we say that, we mean that's what the whole Bible is about. Right. Not, not just certain parts of the Bible. It's not just the Gospels that are about Christ, but, but literally the whole of Scripture is pointing to um, God's plan of restoration through Christ and revealing the Father to us along the way. So, um, Taylor, when did you first um, become aware that the Bible was not just a collection of different books, or wasn't telling an Old Testament story and a New Testament story, but that it was actually telling a cohesive story from cover to cover?
1: Man, what a good question. In a way, I think I became aware of that a few years ago, really when I started approaching the Bible differently, Mm. and also in a way, I'm... I'm more aware of that, really every day, if that makes sense. Like there was, there was a definite moment when I went from maybe using the Bible, like we talked about last week, and more of like a deductive method, kind of coming to the Bible with my questions and then looking for those answers, and really leaving, leaving that as my sole engagement with it outside of like Sunday mornings. Um, is i 've got questions, and I know the Bible is this important book for life and faith, and so I bring those questions to that book, but not taking into account context or the narrative or or really in some cases a narrative in general and so there was a moment like a a season of life where i I went from doing that to approaching the Bible as one story. Mm. And that was hard in the beginning. It was really hard because one, it was unfamiliar, and two, I wasn't sure how this story all played out, like linearly. Yeah, you know, I, I wasn't, I wasn't totally comfortable or familiar with kind of a, a timeline. And mm. I, that I know that's a loaded word, but and, and then it was also it, the more I did it, the easier it became. And that's that's really the purpose of this literature is is to read it over and over for the rest of your life. But there was that moment when yeah I can see this being one story after having it explained to me and and diving into it this way, and then it's like every time I read through something again, more of the pieces are connected, more of the whole story makes sense, and it's been it's been a wild ride <laughs> <laughs> You're a crazy man I'm, I'm, I'm crazy
0: <laughs> um so we, I called this the meta narrative, yeah, um and and what we mean by that is that what we're talking about is like the th- i would I would say the thirty thousand foot kind of overarching story, yeah, um because I mean, there are individual stories that we find throughout the entire Bible, right? Sure. you know from 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 the story of Adam and Eve to the story of Abraham to the story of Israel, I mean, just on and on and on to the story of Jesus. And to some extent, those are individual stories. But when we talk about the meta narrative, what we're saying is all of those stories, all those individual stories, come together to collectively tell an overarching or overhanging cohesive story. Which is a story about God. It mm-hmm. isn't a story uh, simply about Israel. Um, it isn't necessarily a story simply about good and evil. Um, it is a story about God and how He has revealed Himself to humanity and how He is restoring humanity through Christ.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So what uh, what I want to do, Taylor, or attempt to do at least, is I want to just try to walk through um, the individual stories of Scripture and... Um, and hopefully uh, kind of piece together some of this larger meta-narrative for, um, for everyone who's listening today. And, um, and and like you said, when we start talking about a timeline, it does get tricky, um, because we've, we've got this period of time at the beginning of the book of Genesis, right, which deals with creation mm-hmm. and uh, seemingly the early stages of humanity, um, and the Bible, and and this is <laughs> this will be a controversial statement, but I don't really think the Bible is trying to tell us,, uh, here is the date when these things happened, right? Like I, I don't I don't think that the writer of Genesis, be it Moses or someone else, that the writer of Genesis is is trying to communicate to us in a very scientific way um the the earth and the and the galaxy were created at the point in time that we would think of as 6000 BC or 4000 BC or what or 60 billion yes exactly and um if this is something that you start to dig into on your own what you will quickly learn is that there are camps of people out there who are crazy passionate mm-hmm. about this issue yeah um, you have people who are uh, called young earth creationists which means that they believe in a creator like they don't they don't believe necessarily in just a random big bang type uh, moment of creation but that this was all divinely created and that the age
1: of creation is is relatively young yeah and, and that's that's based on what we can. More or less measure in the generations, the genealogies through the Bible, right? That's right, And yes. so basically, we stop where we don't have any more information. Like, we stop moving backward in time when we don't have that info, as given by the Bible.
0: That's right, yeah. yeah. yeah.
1: Um, and Which is, you know, like,
0: I can totally understand why people would do that. Like, why? why? Because if you start reading Genesis, what you're going to find very quickly is essentially... Um, a rough genealogy. Yeah. Um, so so that's that's all well and good um, the challenge is I, I I also at the same time don't think that the writer of Genesis is really trying to drive home in a scientific way specific dates as right. as if as if the writer of Genesis is trying to, uh, defend a position of young Earth creationism, right. which is not something the writer of Genesis would have had any context for or concept of. Yeah. Um, by the same token, the writer of Genesis is also not trying to say that the Earth is millions of years old, like and which would be called old Earth creationism. Um, I, I think he's the, the writer is somewhat ambivalent to. The timeline, so much, or the specific dates, as much as he is concerned with um, the fact that God is the author of creation, Mm -hmm. and that there is a a basic like linear flow of this happened, then this happened, then this happened, right? So you have uh, creation, you have Adam and Eve, you have the fall of man, you have Cain and Abel, you have the Tower of Babel, like you have these sort of seminal moments um, in the early stages of creation. And and it really seems like the author is trying to tell those stories and drive home the flow of those stories more than he is trying to make a case for young earth or old earth. Yeah. Does that seem fair to you?
1: Oh, 100%. I, I think this really feeds off of what we talked about last time. When we're going over observation, and we did it in the, the beginning of the book of Acts, with Acts chapter 1, of just asking those questions, looking at a passage and asking those questions, Uh, who's writing, who are they writing to, when are they writing, what's going on, what's the significance of what they're saying, uh, where are they, why are they writing this, those questions can be asked for all parts of Scripture. And I I think a lot of the stuff that you and I are talking about right now, especially when it comes to, my goodness, how old is the earth? And was there a literal seven-day creation period? Were Adam and Eve literally the only human beings? It just stop. <laughs> like and that's I don't mean that that came up maybe that was a little harsh but these are these are not the questions that the author of Genesis is setting out to answer and I think we get that based on surprise surprise context right if if we can apply an observational method to reading this and really truly observing the text for what it is and not bringing our questions and our 21st century lens and all the information that we have about science and history to this text, I think we can do ourselves a lot of good by by climbing out of our seat and maybe getting into the shoes of an ancient Near Eastern person a little bit better.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, and what's interesting is this this kind of thing is happening on both the front end of the Bible and the back end of the Bible. Oh, yeah. Right. So you've got folks who are arguing over the age of the Earth on the front end of the Bible, and you know as as if as if things began in the year zero, you know. Right. Um, and then on the back end of the Bible, you got folks who are arguing about uh, the Book of Revelation and the Apocalypse and the exact dates and ordering of, of that stuff. And um, you know, often you'll hear people saying, "Well, we think we think the Earth is going to end in twenty twenty four, you know, whenever." And, um, and, and yeah, so there's, and again, it's like, it's missing the point. Like yeah. the, the point is not that we would know specific dates or hold passionately to specific timelines. Um, the point is that we would see God in the midst of this story, that we would experience, we would see his working in the midst of all of this and that we would see how it is pointing to Christ and, and how Jesus is wrapped up in all of this in, as
1: well. So, um, so w- when you say that, as we're going to go through the narrative of scripture, mm-hmm. you're saying we're not starting with creation day one. Here's a year. Here's right, a, right. here's a, here's a time yeah. throughout history when this happened. Yeah. Rather we're starting with creation as a theme and a main point of the beginning of Genesis, and God as being the creator, right, right. There, there's, there's the intention of your story. There's the, mm-hmm. there's the meaning behind why that's in Genesis one and two.
0: Yeah, and it's confusing. I mean, I understand why it's confusing to people. If you read, I mean, just go read Genesis one. Sure. Genesis one is, uh, is seemingly uh, unpacking for us how creation happened. And what it presents us with is six days of creation. Mm -hmm. Um, Genesis 1 is also a poem. Um, And that's not to say it is untrue because it is a poem. Um, but it is presented to us in a poetic way. That's right. And um, one of the things, and we'll talk more about this in our next episode, but, but one of the questions that we ask whenever we're interpreting the Bible is what genre of literature am I reading right now? Yeah. Um, because if you're reading a fiction book, um, you're going to read that in a certain way. You're not going to read that as if the things that you're reading are true. You're going to read it as if it's fiction, whereas if you're reading a nonfiction book, you're going to read it as if those things are true because they are. Um, in the same way, if you're reading poetry even today, like if you're reading um, you know, a book of poetry, you're not necessarily engaging with poetry um, as, as like a, a, an exercise in literalism. Like right. more than likely, you're engaging with poetry as a literary exercise that involves things like metaphor and symbol. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, just common common you know characteristics of poetry, and the same thing is true throughout the Bible. You know, when we get into the Psalms you'll see David saying things like, where can I go to hide from the Lord? Like, I, can I go down to Sheol? Can I go to the right. place of the dead? Can I go to the bottom of the ocean? Like, like he is being sort of grandiose in these metaphors that he's throwing out there. He isn't literally saying, I'm trying to go to the Hebrew place of the dead yeah. to get away from God. Or I, I, I'm, I'm trying to go to the bottom of the ocean. Like, he's he's speaking poetically. So when we encounter Genesis 1... Um, it's natural to come away and go, well, God made the earth in six days, and you're right, that is what Genesis says. Um, but at the same time, what we're saying is the point of Genesis is is not that the earth was made in six days, right? The point of Genesis 1 is that God made the earth, yeah. right, in the beginning, um, and and that the Lord is responsible for all of these things, and He spoke all of these things into existence. That's right. Um, like that's, that's the point. Um, so, so don't come away from that, um, you know, missing that because again, this is about God. Mm -hmm. Um, so does that, does that make sense to you, Taylor? Does that, does does that seem, does that seem fair? Well,
1: I think so. And I, especially because we're kind of, we're on the same side here. So there's, there's not really a debate between you and I as to the contents or the meaning of Genesis one but let's create one let's we, create a debate right now. <laughs> <laughs> let's let's argue that's yeah. my favorite thing
0: this is that's gonna make this way more engaging for everybody
1: <laughs> well no but just just realizing that these stances do exist um, and gosh I coming from some of this it is hard for me um, to not maybe be a little a little brash about it but I just I can't harp on the fact enough that we have to put our questions down and and approach this text and let it yeah. answer questions the way that it wants to. Yes. Yes. So I don't know, man. I don't well, want to create a debate. You no, know, and I'm joking.
0: <laughs> I'm joking. But but that that takes us back to something I think we said in the last episode, which is w- we want the to let the Bible speak for itself. Yeah. Right. Like, we don't want to bring our opinions, our presuppositions to the Bible, um, even, even though it's perfectly okay to have questions, that you go to the Scripture to try to ascertain some answers for questions that you have. There's nothing wrong with that unless you are inserting your positions and your opinions and and kind of forcing your questions onto biblical texts that are not trying to answer the questions that you're asking. Yeah. Um so the best thing we can do is to start with um that inductive, open-minded. We're going to strive to let the Bible speak for itself and um and sometimes the things that it says are easy <laughs> to take in. Sure. Sometimes the things that it says are challenging and hard to take in. Um sometimes the things that it says are just downright bizarre. Yeah. And are confusing you know like what what in the world do
1: i do with this um but but we're letting it speak for itself so on on that note right before we move on cuz i know i mean goodness we we've we're in the first chapter of genesis and we're trying to talk about the meta narrative of the bible but, <laughs> but before we move on if we use the observational method on something like genesis chapter 1 and we look for things like themes or repeated phrases or main intents that's this kind of reinforces what we're saying about the the meaning, the intention behind a passage like Genesis one being God is the creator. Um mm, yeah. and, and that's seen in just the repeated themes. You have you have God saying, God's speech actions happening multiple times more than anything else in this chapter is God said and God said and God said and God said. That should be that should be one of your red flags. That should be one of the things that clues you in on, on a theme, on something important, mm. not necessarily a time or yeah. the the manner in which this was done, but the agent of creation, the yeah. creator, yeah, speaking it into existence. There is there's your observation on chapter one of Genesis. I mean,
0: just the first four words, right? In the beginning, God. God, God is the first character named in the whole of scripture and um and and a, and a time is given but it's an ambiguous time yeah. right it's way, way back. it's in the beginning and and i think you're getting at what is um what you just said is is what it's trying to say is a long time ago mm-hmm. you know in a galaxy far far this away is, this is like, your like Star it is, Wars title it is kind of that thing of of like you know way way back when yeah. all of this was created um before anything else existed, there was God. Right, and um, and yeah, so uh, that's that's a great place I think for us to start as we uh, begin walking through um, just some of the high points of the Bible. We're not going to mention every story uh, in all of Scripture, but um, I think this will be helpful to you because as you start studying the Bible. Again, that question of oh, wait, where am I in the story? Like, where am I in this meta narrative? Where am I, um, you know, in the history mm-hmm. of all of this? Um, that's going to be an incredibly important question for you to answer. Um, so, yeah, so we start with the creation of the world, and not just Earth, but seemingly the whole universe mm-hmm. is created by God in the beginning, and um, and from there, the next big story we get is um, is. You know, obviously, the story of Adam and Eve, and the story of the Garden of Eden and the fall of man, and um, and then the whole debacle with their children. That's right, Cain and Abel, um, where you have the first murder seemingly in human history or mm-hmm. in biblical history at least. And um, and then we come to the story of Noah.
1: Yeah. So things have not gone well. That's right. Since the garden.
0: Yeah. Like very quickly, um, things go south. Yeah. Right. Um, and, you know, Adam and Eve, uh, you know, are deeply convicted, I think, of their sin. Um, they face, uh, punishment for their sin, um, but all of mankind is cursed as well because of their sin. Um, so it's, it's not just the man and the woman. It's, it's everyone who is to come after them. Mm-hmm. And we see this played out, fleshed out, in the story of their children. Yeah. You know, like the first offspring ever, um, Cain and Abel. Um, we immediately find jealousy, pride, rage, murder, um, horrible things. Yeah,
1: just more sin, which continues... And continues until we get the wickedness of man, which was great on the earth. So by the time we've gotten to Genesis six, which is where we pick up with Noah, it was just it was just wickedness. Yeah, things have seemingly rampant. Yeah. yeah, and w- to the point where you've got this tiny remnant, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. So we've we've yeah. gone six chapters in, and you've got like one guy and his family. Mm. who who managed to pull it together.
0: So we've gone from heaven on earth... That's right. ...in the Garden of Eden, initially, where the man and the woman, Adam and Eve, are in the presence of God, they're walking with the Lord in the garden, um, they are given charge over everything, right? We go from that um, utopian moment, um, however long or short that was, mm-hmm. we're not sure... Um, to not only has sin entered into the world, but sin has wreaked havoc seemingly, seemingly overnight, right? Right. Uh, let's talk a little bit about Noah, because I think um, I think that story is one of the ones that people, uh, you know, a lot of people want to look sideways at and go, uh, is that a real story? You right. know, um, with with some of these early, particularly here in the first 12 chapters of Genesis, there are just some things that people kind of go, is that true? Like, yeah. is, is the Bible making the case that that's true? Or is, is this like an allegorical type story, you know? Um, whether it's the tower of babel or it is noah or it's the you know we've mentioned in recent weeks the nephilim right. which are right before this kind actually. of these these strange apparently giant like creatures that genesis mentions briefly that we don't know anything about um how, how do you how do you approach
1: that man i was really hoping you wouldn't ask this <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, I mean I can I'll I'll be upfront. I'll let you know kind of where I am right now with it and this is subject to change because it's, Yeah, and
0: I and I'm happy to cut you off and <laughs> and correct you.
1: <laughs> Wait, this is all going to be scrapped. So uh, yes, so Genesis chapters 1 through 11 are known right in the scholarly circles as the proto-history. Yeah. So it's like this, when we talk about the meta-narrative covering scripture at a 30,000 foot view. Genesis 1 through 11 is doing that to an even greater extent where you've got this seemingly universal lens through Mm -hmm. which we see the whole world before chapter 12 when you pick up on just Abram. So we Mm -hmm. go from everybody to just one guy and his family and things calm down a little bit. In the sense of weirdness, like Mm -hmm. the stuff with the Nephilim and this tower that reaches the heavens, and this worldwide flood, and
0: people living hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, and you still have some of that, but definitely not to this degree. So, okay, so I'll just—I mean, I'll—I'll put my cards on the table. Where I am right now with my—well, your your hands hovering over the stop button, isn't it? (laughs) Where I am right now. Have an ejector seat here. (laughs) is, is I see, and I'm trying to see a lot of Genesis 1 through 11 as true in its meaning and intention. And I struggle to find a good word to use for it, but I'll use the word mythic in its contents. Mm-hmm. And when I say mythic... I don't mean mythology.
0: You don't mean mythological I don't yeah, mean as mytholo- as in Yeah, we're not fake talking about or, Zeus yeah.
1: and the you know, like the Roman gods or the this pantheon. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about mythic in the sense that it is almost unfathomable mm-hmm. in the amount of history that it's covering. Mm-hmm. So that's just man, that's where I see this. And mm-hmm. so the the biggest point for me and I'll use I'll use the flood and Noah's ark as an example. The biggest point for me in talking about a story like Noah's Ark is not the validity or the historicity of the Ark. Mm. I'm not it's not going to shatter my faith if we can't or can go out and find a place where this ark where, you know, this yeah. where this huge boat was deposited on a mountaintop and now we see these shreds of wood. Yeah. That's not that's not what I'm establishing my faith on. And that's not my takeaway from a story like Noah's Ark. My takeaway is actually God saving a remnant through the total depravity and decreation and, and deconstruction of the world yeah. to start anew mm-hmm. and, and to to provide that grace to save someone out of it. So mm-hmm. that that you you mentioned a potential uh, hot button topic earlier with uh, <laughs> with talking about like young the young earth creationism and mm-hmm. old Earth. I know I'm getting into probably a lot hotter water by mentioning that, but that's that's where I stand right now.
0: Yeah, so, I mean, there's there's all kinds of people who are ready to be upset about you know <laughs> stuff, and especially here in this part of the Bible, in the first in the first twelve chapters of Genesis. Yeah. Um, and and I think it's important to say you're not saying I don't think these things are real that's or right. true. That's right. You're saying no, I think these things are true and that they are presented in in sort of this epic way, mm-hmm. right? It, it, with kind of this epic sweep and and yeah, like seemingly a pretty large span of time is being covered here in these 12 chapters and I think I would say these are these are meant to be received as like pivotal moments, like the high points in human history that ultimately lead us to the seemingly random story of a guy named Abram. That's right. You know, like, because you're right. It's like, you've got all of these mythic, that's a great word, I think, like, not mythological, not fake, but these just like epic Things that happen, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, just monumental moments in human history. And then suddenly we're into the story of a random guy from
1: Ur. Yeah. You know, and I think maybe maybe an analogy because I love analogies, but sometimes I'm bad at pulling them off. Maybe one could be it's like the difference between the way that we see some of the founding fathers of the United States versus like. Our current presidents. Mm. And I'm not I'm not bashing any of our current presidents, but what I mean is we we build up these figures from the past Mm. into what I would think in a lot of cases is kind of this mythic status. Right. right. These were real people and they did real things. Mm -hmm. But man, we've amplified them in our in our our nation's historical, Mm -hmm. you know, our cultural view of these folks. We've amplified them. In order to make a point, I think, mm. and so I don't, I don't know if maybe that analogy falls flat or if there's any ground there, but that, that's kind of the lens that I'm seeing this, these first few chapters of Genesis through. That these are, these are real truths, right, that are told in an amplified manner. Yeah, and I don't know. So a few things
0: I would say here, because I agree with you, I, I see these things as, as being true. I think we are meant to receive them as true, as actual events that happened. Um, but at the same time, I think because we are modern or postmodern people um, who are uh, living after the scientific revolution, who are living after the Enlightenment, we have a tendency, even even those of us who are uh, lovers of God, who are believers we still have sort of this embedded tendency within us to be skeptical of things that are supernatural. Sure. And one of the things I say to people all the time is, if God is God, like if the first verse of the Bible is true, if God literally spoke creation into being, then that should be a cue for us to... To not be caught off guard by supernatural things, but instead to be expecting supernatural things.
1: Yeah, that's a great point.
0: Because the Bible begins with the most supernatural thing. I mean, and it's something that we can talk about and say, oh, yeah, God created the heavens and the earth. But I have no clue how that happened. Like, I have no right. clue how that works. What does it even mean for God to speak mm-hmm. creation? into being right. Like, because God's not a man, God's not a human being. Mm -hmm. Um, and then, you know, we're studying through John's gospel right now, we get to John and John says that, that this divine word who is also Jesus was there in the very beginning. And it just further like blows my mind, you know, like I can't, it, it just further, um, you know, supernaturalizes this whole thing to yeah. perhaps make up a word there. <laughs> I like it. Um, so so if God is God, then we should expect supernatural things. and when we read stories like Noah or the story of Job or the story of Jonah and you know him being swallowed by a fish, our tendency is to ask is to bring our question to the text, which our question is, is that true? Yeah. Like that's that's a question we're applying to it right. that I think to your point earlier, I, I don't know that a uh a Middle Eastern person uh living in fifteen hundred BC that, that that would have been the first question that they would ask. Sure. That's that's a very modern way of, of yeah. thinking. I agree. Um And and but but on top of all of that, here's what I would say: if if you get to heaven, like if if you if you come face to face with God, and you learn, well, no, the story of Job was actually just an allegory, and it was meant to teach us something about God's character and God's nature, um, and some things about our own nature as well and ourselves. Would
1: that change anything? Does that make it untrue? Right. 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 Yeah, and, and I think the answer is no. Yes. And I think that's yes. a profound answer. It's, yeah. No, it's still true. The way that we're looking at it is a little bit different. Right. So I, yeah, I apply that to these first chapters, and I think, I think what we're doing here is trying to get back to observing the text, maybe through the lens of the original audience, which far and away brings us closer to capturing the original intention and meaning than mm. through a 21st century westerner's eyes. Yeah. Yeah. So okay, so we've got creation by God.
0: <laughs> yeah. But 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 this is this is huge because we, I mean, it, we're building a foundation here, okay. right? You know, it's we can't um we can't sort of move on until we have established some context for even the very beginning.
1: That's perfect, because I was just trying to move on, because I thought maybe we were, maybe we were <laughs> dawdling. But where do we go from here, Taylor? So, okay, all right, so creation by God. Um, his preserving a remnant through Noah, who was found righteous before God's eyes, so preserving this remnant out of the depravity of man and the destruction of everyone. Yeah,
0: and, and uh, you know... Noah was a human being too. That's right. uh, Which means Noah was not sinless. That's right. Like Noah was not perfect in every way. He he's not Christ, right? Yeah, that's right. But but for some reason. Which I don't know that we fully understand. For some reason God looks at him and sees him as as being righteous. Yeah. Um, maybe maybe he's just kind of the cream at the top. I d I don't know. Like like is he just less sinful than, you know, or I yeah, it's it's Was
1: he the best of the bad choices? Yeah, we don't really <laughs>
0: but... we don't really get God's like rubric for no, we you don't. Know, how he judges these things.
1: But we do in the New Testament get a view that Noah's faith was counted. As righteousness, in much yes. the same way that Abraham's was. Yes. So I guess we're yes. we're kind of establishing that shelf space maybe in our mind. Mm-hmm. But so Noah, right, is saved from destruction, um, and then we get the Tower of Babel, where mm-hmm. the earth decide all seemingly all of humanity decides that they want to reach the heavens and become like God which has these echoes of Genesis 3 again in the garden. That's right, yeah. And so we get another dispersion, another scattering, and out of that is where you the the lens, that if we're looking at this 30,000-foot view, just zooms in. Yeah. And so we get Abram and his family. So out of this scattering from Babel or Babylon, we get this zoom in right on this one guy, Abram, yeah. and we start following him. Now, why is
0: Abraham or Abram, as he's first called, he eventually his name is changed to Abraham? Why why is he significant? Like, why this guy?
1: Um, so it doesn't. Correct me if I'm wrong. It doesn't say right. I mean, no. He's he's seemingly insignificant. Yeah. In fact, I feel like that's 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 kind of harped on that. Like it's Abram's not chosen for his his credentials. Like he's. Mm. He's got he's got no street cred with yeah. God that makes God say, yeah, this is the guy. Um, but he, he picks Abram and gives him a test. Mm. Yeah. God picks Abram and, and gives him a test and gives him a choice, much in the same way he did Adam and Eve, and allows Abram or instructs Abram to leave his country, mm-hmm. leave his family, leave his land, three extremely <laughs> important things for Eastern people. Mm-hmm. Uh, really? I mean, anybody An- ancient, in the world at this ancient time, people. ancient yeah, people, yeah, yeah. Uh, to, to leave these three things and have faith in God that he's going to establish a name and give him land and yeah. give him a family. So leave yeah. these three things, right, which which man has created or you have created for yourself and allow me to create them for you. Yeah. is God's call.
0: So God makes promises our right. Abram, right? Yeah. Um, and these promises become significant not only for Abram, but for his descendants, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years later. Yeah, um, and these basic promises, which we refer to as a covenant, God's covenant with Abraham or Abram. Um, what 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 are the promises yeah, that God so makes?
1: God promises that He's going to bless Abram to make His name great, and well, so I'm He's. I'm looking at Genesis 12, which is his first Mm -hmm. order to Abram. I will bless you, make you a great nation, make your name great, and you Mm -hmm. shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I'll curse those who curse you. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So the biggest part of this promise or this covenant between God and Abram is, look, with you, between you or you and from your line, we're going to bless I'm going to bless the entirety of humanity yeah yeah um, if we go uh, if we skip ahead just a couple chapters yeah
0: well i I'm'm I'm gonna skip ahead oh uh, you're skipping
1: a lot okay. I'm gonna skip a whole a, a, a whole Testament I'm trying to go at a snail's pace
0: Well, I'm gonna skip ahead to Matthew okay, gotcha chapter one. Um, just to give you an idea of, of how this story is coming together. Yeah, yeah. Right? If you go to the first book in the New Testament, Matthew chapter one, Matthew begins with the genealogy of Jesus. Mm-hmm. And um, in uh, the very first verse of Matthew, Matthew 1 1, it says, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. That's right. So literally, Matthew traces Jesus's genealogy all the way back to this point in Genesis chapter 12. that's right. Um, so so right here, um, we, we are launching into the trajectory that is going to ultimately bring Jesus into this world.
1: Yeah right yeah so for for like the the why of Abram, that's ultimately our reason. Yeah. so the, the why did God choose mm-hmm. Abram? Well, the the ultimate reason is because Jesus is going to come from Abram's line. But as far as like the what's the what's the basis for it? Right. Abram didn't have anything special yeah. that, that these other guys.
0: Which did. is a recurring theme. That's right. <laughs> That's a recurring theme we see in the Bible. That that God is not necessarily choosing the most intelligent uh, or the most capable, um, and not even choosing always the most faithful people. That's right. Um, and what's a, what's amazing about God is is He's able to use people who might not even th- think He exists, yeah. you know, or who might worship other gods. God is able to use them to accomplish His purposes, um, again, supernaturally. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so we get this covenant with Abraham to bless him, uh, to ultimately give him a land, to give him descendants, to make them... Uh, you know, innumerable. Mm-hmm. Um, but but I think one of the key parts of this is that his, his lineage will be a blessing to the nations. That's right. Um, and we see that uh, manifested fully through Christ. You know, Christ is this ultimate uh, fruit of the line of Abraham that is a blessing to not just... Uh, Jews, not just to Israel, which is is the nation and the kind of the ethnic group that comes out of Abraham Abraham's family, but uh, to everyone, yeah. to what the Bible would call Gentiles, which is basically everyone else, right? right? Everyone who's not uh, of the line of Israel. Um, so yeah, but at the same time, um, God fulfills His promise and does make Abraham's descendants very numerous. Yeah. Um, thousands and thousands and thousands of people. and um, Abram, uh, you know, for much of his story does not have children. Yeah. And so God has made this promise, but it's like, how in the world is this all going to come to fruition? Um, and so as we know the Lord eventually gives him a son uh, whose name is Isaac. Uh, Isaac uh, has uh, two sons, Jacob and Esau. Um, the Lord chooses Jacob to continue this promise, this covenant. And Jacob is the one who is eventually renamed by God. Yeah, Israel.
1: Despite Jacob being the second-born, that's right, and seemingly the the lesser. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, he is chosen by God. That's right. Um, and and why is he chosen by God? Because because that's who God chose. Yeah. you know, it's it, that's about the best answer we have there. Um, and so this covenant continues, and uh, I think it's really important to highlight the covenant because especially as you're studying the Old Testament and as you're doing interpretive work, it's one of the questions that you have to ask is, is what is the covenantal period that we're in? Because there are actually a variety of covenants yeah. that we find in the Old Testament. God made a covenant initially with Adam, um, God made a covenant with Noah. Mm-hmm. God made a covenant with Abraham. Which most of the time, if you if you hear people talking about the covenant, they're primarily talking about the covenant that was made with Abraham. Um, but God also makes promises to Moses. He makes promises to David. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, it's significant to um, to just ascertain where are we at in what we could call covenantal history whenever we're seeking to interpret a passage of Scripture. So we go, uh, the story of Abraham, uh, we go into Isaac's story briefly, and then primarily into the story of Jacob and his descendants. And what's interesting with Genesis is a large portion of the book of Genesis is devoted to one of Jacob's sons, whose name is Joseph. That's right. Jacob has 12 sons who become the 12 tribes of Israel. Um, but but Joseph is significant because Joseph plays this very Christ-like role within his family. You know, he his brothers uh, uh, try to kill him and think he may pr- possibly probably be dead after they sell him into slavery. And yet Joseph rises to prominence within the nation of Egypt. Um, he becomes an official in the court of Pharaoh that holds great power. Yeah, and um, in a time of famine, he winds up saving his entire family. You That's know, right. so so this person who they believe to be dead, you know, in a sense comes back from the dead and is is able to save them from death. Yep. Um, so it really is a beautiful picture, kind of an archetype of of what is to come in Christ. Um where do we go from there in the story of israel?
1: uh well, I guess it's worth mentioning that along the way, Joseph is a bit of a jerk, and <laughs> yeah. so he 's not jesus either right right that's he's true. Not, yeah. he's not blameless yeah, and that 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 was always one of the things that that struck me as odd in that story, but mm. anyway, I guess that 's neither here nor there, but just to point yeah. out that Joseph has his flaws like any of us yeah um, so from there we get a few more generations. The Israelites who now live in Egypt are uh expanding yeah. at a rapid rate yep. so rapidly it makes one of the next pharaohs very afraid of them mm. which they're, they're slaves in Egypt mm-hmm. but this ruler of Egypt becomes afraid of their number that they're just going to outnumber the Egyptians and take over and so what he decides to do is is just kill them off mm. we're going to start killing them off we're going to oppress them we're going to kill them We're we're going to strike them down so that they can't outnumber us he tries that three times, and on the third time, uh, God raises a deliverer for the people, and that deliverer mm. comes through Moses. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. So once again, uh, the people are enslaved. Uh, well, I say once again. Once again, we ha- we have sort of this this archetype, this Savior archetype that rises to the surface, and in this case, the people of Israel are enslaved, and the Lord sends a Redeemer, basically, yeah. in, in the form of Moses. Um, Moses, who is really, you know, kind of the first significant prophet that we see pop up in the Bible. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, if you've ever seen the movie The Ten Commandments, or if you've read the Bible, you know the story of Moses. Um,
1: Wait, not the Monty
0: Python one. No. Right? Okay.
1: What are you talking about? The Ten Commandments movie?
0: That's that's not a Monty Python movie. What is it? The Holy Grail? Is that what you're thinking of? Maybe. Monty Python and the Holy Grail? Don't watch that one. That's different. Okay, <laughs> that's completely different. No, there. Never mind. We'll we'll scrap this. <laughs> this is all getting cut. <laughs> um, yeah, but but Moses, uh, yet another significant figure. Um, you know, he he is viewed as you know as we've seen recently in the Gospel of John, he's he's viewed later as the prophet, right. like like the guy. Um, and Moses is obedient to the Lord. He rescues the people of Egypt, I mean, people of Israel from Egypt, and um, begins moving them back to the place that they originally came from, the land that God originally promised to Abraham, that they had to leave during the time of Joseph because of the famine. Now, something like 400 years later, Moses is taking them through the desert um, back to this land of Canaan that God had given to them. And yet, during that time, the land—you know—the land is filled with these tribes of people who have, who have, you know, who are there and have set up shop and are ruling the roost. Um, but we are introduced to these people who are um, distrustful of God, mm-hmm. much in the same way that Adam and Eve were. Um, they, even though God has done incredible things for them, they're—they're they're not even really sure that He's real.
1: Right. They come off as very short. Short-sighted or or almost like they have short-term memory loss, it seems like, where you'll get a chapter of amazing powers that God displays and then a chapter of grumbling. Mm -hmm. It's this weird back and forth.
0: Yeah, they're just kind of faithless people, even though they've seen incredible supernatural things that you and I have never seen. Over and over again. That's right. That's right. Um, and so their their uh, disobedience, their lack of faith causes them to wander in the wilderness for 40 years yep. um, before the next generation, um, under the leadership of somebody named Joshua, is actually able to take the people into the land. And and there's so... I mean, we're just blowing through some of this because there's so much that happens there. The Lord gives the law to the people through Moses, including the Ten Commandments, but many other things as well. Um, and the law is intended to be um, something that would set these people apart as a distinct distinct, and, and special people. Um, and I think part of this goes along with that covenant made with Abraham that they would ultimately be a people who are living in such a way that they are a blessing to other nations yeah. in a literal sense. Um, and, and so part of this is them coming into the land of Canaan, retaking it from all the tribes that are there, and establishing this place as um, this, uh, you know, this land flowing with milk and honey, you know, like this this amazing, uh, almost new Eden type of place, right? Yep. Even though it's still filled with people who are sinners who are in need of grace, the Lord has given the law so that their sins can be atoned for, and... Um, his call to them is, um, be holy for I am holy, right?
1: Yeah, but things don't go well.
0: No, they don't. Um, and that's that's really the story of Israel is
1: that things don't go well. Yeah, really the story of humanity. So we've got this this great offer yeah. given by God, th- this great opportunity, but humanity in turn seizes something they want by their own means, mm-hmm. rather than relying on God's wisdom and his provision we fall into sin, we fall into disrepair, He lifts us up Mm -hmm. and offers great opportunity Yeah, and just repeat over and over again. And
0: that really is the cycle of the Old Testament that we see repeated over and over again. It's especially true in the book of Judges. Which comes right after Joshua. That's right. So um, the, the nation of Israel, this group of people who've left Egypt, they come back into the land of Canaan, they start reclaiming it, um, but they they don't go all the way, and, and, and they don't follow the Lord in, in complete obedience. They don't drive out all the Canaanite tribes from the land. They they kind of do as much as they want to do, and then they stop, and um, it creates this this cycle of sin that we're talking about. And um, in, in the book of Judges, you find a group of people who are living kind of tribally. They are not people who are obedient to the Lord in... Uh, in any significant way. You see a lot of problems and issues, and there are these essentially military leaders um, who pop up during this time who are referred to as judges, mm-hmm. um, who are not, they're not kings, they're not judges in a judicial sense in the way that we think of judges today. They really are more like kind of local warlords, right? local kind of tribal leaders within uh, the nation of Israel. And some of those names may be familiar to you. People um, like Gideon, yeah. Uh, people like Samson. Um, uh, there's a female judge named De- uh, Deborah, um, which is surprising to some people. Um, but uh, but it is just kind of a lawless time, and it's uh, there's a lot of like disturbing stories that yeah. we read in that time period. A lot of like just strange stuff that happens. Um, and it leads the people ultimately, I think, to look around at other nations and go, man, we're, we're a mess. Um, and they conclude that their problem is not that they're being disobedient to the Lord. They conclude that their problem is that they don't have a king.
1: Yeah, which is ironic in a way, because the whole reason for the law and the reason for them being able to—or the meaning behind all this is for them to live— in communion with God who is their ultimate king. Right. And by doing all these things halfway, like these half-hearted efforts to take the land which they don't do it the whole way, these half-hearted efforts to follow God which they don't do it the whole way. They lose sight of all of this and end up going what we're missing here is a king. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is true. It's true. They're missing the king because they're not recognizing the king. God as king. Right, yeah. But what they decide is, we need a king like the other nations, so they can be like the other nations. Yeah. And that's what they get.
0: That is what they get. And what's interesting is the Lord, uh, you know, the Lord speaks to this to a certain extent. Um, yeah. And, and, you know, you would pick up on this story in the book of Samuel. That's right. Um, but the Lord basically says, but I'm your king. Mm-hmm. Don't don't you realize? But yet, at the same time, God uh, agrees to give them a human king, and the Lord selects this person named Saul. That's right. Um, and and by all accounts, Saul is the guy who you would expect to be king. Like yeah. you know, he is sort of this like strong, strapping, handsome guy. You know, yeah, he, he is. is like the captain of the football team.
1: He's like taller than anyone else yeah. in Israel. Mm-hmm. He's I think he's described as being very pretty. <laughs> Is that the word Something. Is that the Hebrew? Maybe that's my translation. You're pretty. <laughs> he's pretty. <laughs> but yeah, he's like he's the big guy. He's the one you would want as king. Yeah And does this go well? No
0: uh, <laughs> so uh, there's some interesting language um, regarding the story of Saul, but uh, you know the Lord's spirit comes on Saul mm-hmm. and, and seemingly empowers him in the early stages. Um, but eventually the Lord removes his spirit from Saul. And sends a, uh, a, something like a troublesome spirit, um, yeah. um, a spirit that causes him great distress. And, and really what we see in the story of Saul is that he becomes a very mentally ill person, um, a person who is paranoid um, and thinks that people are, are out to get him. And um, the person who he thinks is primarily out to get him is, is this guy named David. That's Right. Um, David, you know, many people know the story of David and Goliath. Um, that's a pivotal moment, not because David slays this giant, but because David um, kind of comes to the forefront as, as a figure in Scripture. Yeah. Um, uh, God sends Samuel to anoint David as the next king of Israel, but that's all done in a sort of clandestine way because Saul is still king. And yep. David's just a young boy at this point. Um, and yet, because of his um, conquest of Goliath, David comes into the company of Saul and um, comes into the court of Saul and becomes something of a companion to Saul mm-hmm. as well. And yet, Saul doesn't, I don't. I don't think Saul knows that this this person has been anointed by God to replace me.
1: Yeah, in fact, David seems to say during the latter years of Saul's reign and life that that he he won't touch Saul because Saul was the anointed one. Yeah, I'm just showing this this great level of faith that David has. Yeah. So yeah. even that the even that God is even after God has taken His spirit from Saul, David's not going to touch him. And so you get this weird like crossing rise and fall of these two characters as one depends more and more on his own methods and wisdom in Saul and one depends more and more on God and faith uh, in
0: so interesting to me about this story and, and these archetypes of, of Saul and David is Saul is the guy who you would choose to be king, right? Yeah. As we said, David is not right. at all. Um, and yet Saul is a complete failure as a king, and David is outside of, of Christ himself, the greatest king that Israel ever knows. That's like right. David, uh, yet at the same time, has a really hard life. Um, especially the first the first half of his life, where prior to him becoming king, I mean, Saul decides that David is the enemy, and David becomes a man who has to live on the run. Yeah, like he has to, um, you know, basically hide out and you know run away from Saul so that he's not killed. Um, Saul eventually dies in battle. David becomes king. And um, yet David's life is not free of problems. David is not a perfect person. He's certainly not a sinless person. That's right. Um, And we see this on a number of occasions. Uh, The story of David and Bathsheba is um, the more prominent, I think, of the stories. And that's the story where David has an affair with a married woman and then takes steps to make sure that her husband is killed in battle. Yeah. Um, And yet... um, Bathsheba becomes the person who uh, is the mother of the king who follows David, mm-hmm. which is Solomon. That's right. Um, and between David and Solomon, a, a golden age, really, for the nation of Israel is ushered in. Um, it's an age where, primarily in the reign of David, in the first part of Solomon's reign, where the nation really seems to have kind of turned back to God from the days of the judges and the days of Saul that um, they are a nation that once again worships the Lord and loves the Lord and is seeking to be obedient to the Lord. Yeah. And- to the
1: point where David wants to build a house for mm-hmm. God. He So he wants to build this temple. They're, the people of Israel are so well established. They're mm-hmm. They're taking measures of this promised land. They're extending their borders, and he wants to establish a house of God and In a weird kind of twist, God tells him, no, actually, I'm going to establish your house Mm. and makes this messianic prophecy, but also tells him, look, there's one coming after you who will establish a house for me, who will build a house for me. Mm -hmm. And Solomon, David's son, ends up doing just that in a way, building a temple, building the the temple of Solomon, this big grandiose place. Mm -hmm. Um, Just a few chapters into what I guess this is we're in. First Kings, Kings. Now. Yeah. yeah. I'm trying, while we're doing this, I'm trying to keep track of all the books that we're. So <laughs> yes. we've gone all the way through Samuel. We're in the Kings now with yeah, yeah, Solomon. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: yeah. Well, and and Solomon builds this. I mean, I, I think by all accounts, like a wonder of the world. Yeah. You know, at that point in time, with with his temple, I mean, it is massive. It is incredibly ornate. Um, I mean, he builds it out of. I mean, he he just he like imports all of these building materials that are luxurious and fabulous and engages thousands and thousands of workers to make this thing a reality and we get the sense that people start coming from all over to just see this thing and and to see this kingdom that solomon is ruling over Um, we get some books from solomon in the Mm -hmm. old testament um we get uh, song of solomon uh, we get Proverbs uh, is largely attributed to Solomon as well, and and Solomon becomes known for his wisdom, Yeah, um, and that wisdom, at least initially, seems to be rooted in uh, a love of the Lord and a desire to be obedient to the Lord, and yet Solomon, over time, starts to fall away in his obedience, and yeah. um, he begins to marry all of these different women from different kingdoms and different places who come into his kingdom worshiping other gods, and so Solomon just decides, well, I'll worship those gods too. Mm -hmm. Um, And so he sort of abandons
1: monotheism
0: at that point. Yeah,
1: Um, But I think an important thing about Solomon's life particularly is we might get kind of a, a false view that he was the perfect guy, and he had it all together if not for... You know, if not for him marrying all not women. not these pesky women, right? <laughs> yeah, but but the hints actually start a lot earlier in Solomon's life. When, yeah, when you get this, you get this grandiose uh, narrative and, and description of the temple that he builds. Which, if you if you look at the text, it's second only in opulence to his own house. Yeah, which which he he spends. You know, there's there's a couple chapters that talk about this temple and then like double that amount of text that talk about Solomon's own house. Mm -hmm. And he, so he just starts to do these things that with a careful understanding of scripture, you'll realize, oh, so while he has this wisdom, he's he's not the perfect guy. This is Mm -hmm. not the one when God tells David, I'm going to establish your house forever. It's not on the shoulders of Solomon. And you see that pretty early on, but especially at the end of his life. Yeah, that's true. One thing
0: that we need to mention here is that as we get into the story of David and Solomon and, and then on from there, uh, the prophets really start to become a significant piece of this whole equation. Yeah. And, and who are the prophets?
1: Yeah, so prophets in general, I guess, as, as kind of a quick little uh, definition, a prophet is more or less a mouthpiece for God it's someone who primarily especially once once we're past Moses these prophets are primarily calling folks calling Israel back to the covenant standards calling them calling them back to the law and the covenant that God has set out so that they may live and be this holy people so right. most of what they're doing is not necessarily foretelling the future but it's calling people back to covenant and God will use some of that foretelling through the prophets to basically give them credence, yeah. to give them some, some authority to their words.
0: So it's incredible. God makes this covenant with, you know, initially with Abraham to, to do all of these amazing things. He continues to re-up his commitment to the covenant. Mm-hmm. He makes that clear. Um, across a large span of time. He wants to bless these people. He wants to bless this nation. He wants them to be a blessing to other nations. And they just don't want it. They, They just don't want it. They don't want to do what he wants them to do. They want to do their own thing. Again, we just see this cycle over and over again. And following Solomon, um, it just becomes clear yet again that these people think they know better than God. And despite the fact that the Lord starts to send these these prophets who go, hey, remember the covenant, hey, remember what God has done, remember the Lord's faithfulness, remember how good the Lord is and how gracious the Lord is, and come back to Him. And um, despite all of that, What winds up happening after the time of Solomon is that the nation falls into a period of civil war, yeah, and it winds up splitting into two nations, and you have what becomes known as the Northern Kingdom uh, of Samaria, which is also called still Israel, and um, and then you have the Southern Kingdom of Judah, and the Southern Kingdom of Judah is significant, uh, even though it is smaller than the Northern Kingdom of Israel... The southern kingdom is significant because it is where Jerusalem is, yeah. and thus where the temple is, and That's right. where Solomon's palace was, and all of those things.
1: Yeah, and the, and the line of David That's right. is who's still here. This line of David, this line of Judah, mm-hmm. who we believe we're watching through the pages of Scripture, looking for this coming Savior, this Messiah, this next David.
0: That's right. Yeah, so the Northern Kingdom uh, just completely apostatizes, right? They just completely turn away from the Lord and like fo- immediately a, a f- and follow their own path. And then we ge- we get this series of kings uh, that come. The Lord doesn't just kick them to the curb; He sends prophet after prophet to them to call them back. If you were uh, a part of our study of the minor prophets, we talked about several of those prophets, guys like Amos, people like Hosea. Uh, Jonah was a prophet in the Northern Kingdom as well. Um, so the Lord is is lovingly trying to call them back, and He's been clear from the very beginning, like, destruction will ultimately come if you turn away from me, if you turn mm-hmm. against me, if you don't follow the law, if you don't um, kind of maintain your... Um, side of the covenant. And um, in the southern kingdom of Judah, you do have the line of David. You have more of a hodgepodge of kings, whereas in the north, everybody's evil, everybody's just doing their own thing. In the south, it's a little different. You have some kings who are righteous, who Mm -hmm. want to live lives and lead a kingdom that honors the Lord, and then you have some who are not that way at all and turn against the Lord. Um, but but it's not just a question of, are the kings good or bad? It's also a question of the people of yeah. Israel and the people of Judah as well. And what slowly seems to happen over time for both the North and the South is that the false religions of the Canaanites become the predominant religions. Yeah. Um, and most often seen in the worship of what are called Baals, or sometimes you'll hear, you'll hear them called Baals. Yeah. Um, and, and that's not necessarily one god per se, but, but instead many different gods. Um, it's kind of a word for God, is Baal. Um, and, and so, yeah, the Lord ultimately destroys both the north and the south, and um, the Assyrians, another nation, sweep in and overtake the north, carry them into exile, and uh then a little while after that the babylonians come into the south and carry the people of judah into exile yeah and yet this kind of returns us to the story of noah in that's a way right. because even though destruction has come and even though many people have been wiped out there is still a remnant right
1: yeah that's right you get this you get this line especially of judah but you see this in books like Daniel, yeah. um, where you have this this remnant of the Israelites who are now in exile, but who are who are given a way to come back. Um, and yeah, I guess I guess Daniel maybe is the best example of that. But it's these folks who stay who stay faithful under the pressure, especially cultural pressure, and. And stay faithful to God. So it's this this small remnant of folks who are clinging really only to God, mm-hmm. um, and are allowed to come back and come back to Jerusalem and Judah and start rebuilding. And you get again these hints of like the call, the the assignment in Genesis three, and after Noah after the flood, the the offer that he's God, and you get these these callbacks to everything that's happened in the Old Testament is like, hey, here it is on offer. You're coming back. You're allowed to rebuild. And it's just this huge cliffhanger. Yeah. yeah. It just doesn't happen the way that we think it should have. Yeah.
0: And throughout all of this, the people are enslaved. Still, yeah, I think that's the metaphor. Yeah, they're still—that's
1: right. Like the people
0: are—they—they may not necessarily be in physical slavery at all times, even though once you know people get carried away into exile, they are sort of in slavery again. But they're enslaved to sin, Mm -hmm. right? And and what becomes so clear, and what the prophets begin talking about, is the need for a savior, and the fact that there is one coming. Mm -hmm. who is going to restore Israel. And when they talk about restoring Israel, they don't necessarily mean restoring the physical nation of Israel. They are talking about restoring the relationship between Israel and God. Yeah. Um, And once again, bringing this people back to being a covenant people who are a blessing to the nations. Yeah,
1: and I think that's what some of those last stories in the Old Testament hit on, is because you get... You get books like Ezra and Nehemiah, mm-hmm. where the people are, in a sense, restoring Israel. They're they're rebuilding the walls and the houses and the temple itself. Yeah, and yet you're not restoring. But it's still hearts. imperfect. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's still it's so imperfect. imperfect. Yeah,
0: so people are carried away into exile. This remnant um, is allowed ultimately to return to Jerusalem and to the land of Judah. But it's a mess after all of this battle. They have to start the process of trying to rebuild these things, but they're still a subservient people, and uh, eventually the Roman Empire comes in, and they're under the thumb of the Roman Empire, um, which ultimately takes us to the beginning of the New Testament. And so let's stop here for today, Taylor. In our next episode, we'll pick up and we'll continue on... Um, with just the little bit that's left that will take us through the end of the New Testament. But what I hope you see in all of this is that these are not random stories, right? That the Bible is telling a very clear and cohesive story um, that is not just the story of Israel either, um, even though they are the predominant, uh, a predominant figure in the pages of the Old Testament, but that all of this is setting the stage for what is to come with Christ. So I think that's a good place for us to stop today. Yeah. And, um, you know, hopefully we won't get too much hate mail
1: after this episode. I- I'm so. expecting it.
0: <laughs> hey, we'll see you guys next time as we continue on in uh, just the meta-narrative of Scripture and as we talk start talking more specifically about how best to uh, begin interpreting the Bible in light of the things that we're talking about. So we'll join you guys then.